0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Happy Earth Day, April 22nd, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod and this week's roundtable where we look back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. Nationwide, of course, the one big story of the week is the thrice guilty verdict for former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, after which the entire nation, starting with the president and vice president, breathed a sigh of relief. But where do we go from here? Will Congress take up the torch of police reform or will President Biden go back to his campaign promise of creating a national commission on police reform? Meanwhile, it helps to set goals you can not only reach but exceed. Joe Biden did so, doubling his initial goal of 100 million vaccinations against COVID in his first 100 days, 200 million this week. Anybody who wants to get vaccinated today can, but what about all those who don't want to get vaccinated? Still a long way to go on both issues and a whole lot of others, so helping us sort it all out for us today... Nikki Schwab, national political reporter for the Daily Mail. Hello, Hello, Nikki. Hello, Bill. Okay, Eliza Collins, political reporter for Wall Street Journal. Hi, Eliza.
2: Hi there.
1: And Jeff Duver, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Welcome. Hello, Bill. Okay, so um, it was Tuesday. The verdict came in just about a little over 10 hours after the jury started deliberating. Nikki, you were at the White House on pool duty. What was the atmosphere like around the White House once you knew a verdict was coming in?
3: Uh, well, it was pretty interesting, Bill, because uh, Joe Biden was set to deliver you know, remarks on the American Jobs Plan, and he had just taken this sort of virtual tour, which we are sort of laughing about because uh, there are all sort of these like, tech snafus, right? And he's trying to, like, learn about buses in South Carolina. So he's, you know, dealing with something completely different than the Derek Chauvin trial. And then we hear that this, you know, this verdict is coming down. Uh, so they brought the pool over to what's called the South Court Auditorium. And so we're waiting there for Biden's remarks, and everyone's sort of apprehensive that— you know, the verdict is literally going to come down in the middle of him delivering remarks on a completely separate subject. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, the White House very quickly wised up and and decided that this was a bad idea. And so they grabbed us reporters back, brought us back to the briefing room. Uh, And then we were sort of in this holding pattern. And what was funny is... um, we actually knew that they were going to do some sort of address because they accidentally like beamed in the preparation into the TVs, into the, the briefing room. So they've got those big widescreens that are set up on either sides of the right. podium. And we could see that they were, you know, testing out, uh, you know, lighting and sound in um, what's called the cross hall. So it's that big grand hall whenever you first walk into uh, sort of the the first floor of the White House. So we, we, we got... Uh, some inkling that that's what was going to happen. And then, you know, eventually they informed the pool that it was going to be both the president and the vice president. And they brought us up into the, you know, into the actual white house. And we were just sort of waiting and waiting until the Floyd family was, you know, finished with their remarks. And then that's when the president and the, or the vice president, and then the president gave their speeches.
1: Yeah. And here is the president with his, uh, encouragement that this is an opportunity for, um, particularly the Congress and the American people, to act. We can't leave this moment or look away thinking our work is done. We have to look, as we did, for those nine minutes and 29 seconds. We have to listen. I can't breathe. Those are George Floyd's last words. We can't let those words die with him. This can be a moment of significant change. Jeff, we've seen so many presidents, including Barack Obama, I remember, uh, hesitant to say anything at all about anything that was going on in a courtroom. I mean, Joe Biden really broke that tradition, didn't he? Uh,
0: he did. And, and I, was, I was actually rather shocked by that. Uh, the, the, the typical reaction is, well, we have to let the legal system play out. Maybe, right. there's, an, maybe there's an appeal. I can't, uh, I, I can't be seen as, as, as putting my thumb on the scale. And we might talk about Maxine Waters later, you know, the judge judge admonished her for what she said, um, much less the president saying something. Um, I, I, on a broader point, though, I want to be a little bit of a wet blanket here. uh, So I apologize in in advance. That's fine. Uh, I've been, I've been a little dismayed at how the political tribalism we have even seems to have affected something like this. Um, In what way? uh, uh, well, Amanda Chase, a candidate for governor in Virginia, said the said the, uh, the, the verdict made her sick, quote unquote. Um, Joe Walsh, the former congressman who's now become a, a, a devout anti-Trumper, uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, that he's got a million followers on Facebook. Most of them are still GOP base voters, and virtually all of them uh, have been echoing Tucker Carlson's take that the jury was simply scared and bullied into making that verdict, uh, that it was some sort of, of, of mob justice. And I mean, if that were the case, the jury likely would have taken longer than 10 hours to deliberate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd, you'd have probably ended up with a, with a hung jury. Um, in fact, I'd have wagered that a, a hung jury in a mistrial was the defense's best case scenario going in. Um, so this was, I, I, I think, a little dismaying that, uh, that there's almost nothing that's beyond the reach of, of, of tribalism right now.
1: Uh, And perhaps we should not be surprised at that. So, Eliza, um, now a lot of people are saying, okay, the jury did its job. Uh, It's now up to Congress, uh, particularly up to the Senate. In fact, uh, I I saw a headline this morning, maybe on CNN, that said the Floyd verdict, quote, may rock the Senate. Um, (laughs) Do you? Think there's any chance of that, Republicans and Democrats coming together on police reform? What do you see? Well,
2: there's a rare, small, small, small amount of hope in the Senate right now. Um, Sort of unlike, I guess, maybe more rank-and-file Republicans around the country, most Republican senators said that they... Agreed, or as Joni Arts put it, she guessed she agreed um, with the verdict. <laughs> but there is a feeling in the Senate, especially, that something has to be done. And there are what they say, you know, good faith negotiations happening between a very small group of people. So the question is can that group come together and then can they win over the majorities of their caucuses? But basically, Cory Booker and Tim Scott in the Senate, so one Republican, one Democrat, who are friends, and so there is some pre-trust there, are negotiating with Karen Bass, who is a House member who had the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that has passed the House now twice. Um, Republicans say that bill, as is, is a non-starter. But they are negotiating in the hopes of coming up with a compromise. What is unique to Congress, where nothing really ever gets done, is that all three people are saying that they're very optimistic and they feel like something could come in a matter of weeks. But there, it really comes down to something called qualified immunity, which is basically protections for police officers to not be sued. Um, Republicans say if getting if getting rid of qualified immunity is in the bill it's a non-starter. Democrats say there needs to be some way to hold police officers accountable. And so right now, the question is, can they agree on something that Democrats are satisfied, hold police officers accountable, and Republicans feel like it doesn't completely take away all protections for officers?
1: Uh, and Nikki, what is the White House saying about the fact that as a candidate, Joe Biden said one of the first things he would do would be appoint a national commission on police reform. He's backed off that.
3: Uh, Yes, Bill, he sure has. And it's interesting because it's been asked like over and over and over again in the briefing room, like, Hey, like, why not just do this? And their answer continues to be, well, Hey, like we, we really want this, this, you know, the George Floyd bill in, in Congress to pass. So I, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, if it becomes, uh, unsuccessful that that perhaps they'll go that route, but it is it has been interesting because you know again reporters have been asking this over and over again and, and they and they keep on giving the same answer. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about the negotiations on the Hill, it sounds like what Tim Scott wants to do actually with qualified immunity is have police departments be held mm-hmm. accountable versus individual police officers. Uh, Democrats are not quite exactly on board with that, but it sounds like that the door hasn't been shut on that concept. So that might be the way that they they word uh, qual- the way that qualified immunity works in in this package that might end up being able to get through the Senate. But we will see.
0: I, I also thought it was interesting that the business roundtable and some of the business community members have weighed in on this in support. Um, so that that support, could pressure in support of. In, in support of the uh, of the police reform bills. Got it. Um, so that, that could uh, lean
1: on Republicans as well a little bit. Well, Jeff, I was going to ask you, um, I, I know the White House seems defensive on this idea that they're not moving forward with a commission. But in my layman's view, if they could get a bill through Congress, that's better than having another one of many, many, many government commissions to study sure.
0: it, I mean, right? Government commissions are, are a, are a punchline. Well, we're going to we're going to study this. We're going to we're going to take a long, hard look. At this. That's the that's that's the, the, the punch line. Um, yeah. To, to Nikki's point, I think they would want to see that go through. And, and if it if it doesn't, they can always back off and do something on executive order or a commission to study it, et cetera, and make it look like they're pushing the ball Forward a little bit, but you know why not? Why not throw the ball downfield instead of, of instead of handing it off for three yards?
1: Uh, and Eliza, the administration didn't wait uh, long to move on. In, at least uh, in one area, the very next morning, the attorney general, um, kind of re- renewing something that started happening during the Obama administration. Right, it's taking a look at whether there's a pattern of racial injustice inside the Minneapolis Police Department.
2: Exactly. And so that is significant. And that does sort of show where the administration stands on this. They are, I mean, it is one police department that they are zeroing in on, but this is very significant. And, you know, I think police departments, we will start to see this more and more as, you know, these shootings, it didn't just happen. I guess it wasn't a shooting, but these killings just didn't just happen in Minnesota. And so I think the fact that the DOJ immediately went out and said, we are looking in. At the Minnesota Police Department for issues in their practices is very significant.
1: Right. So it is Earth Day today, and the president launches a, a fairly unique thing. We haven't seen anything like this before. It's a virtual summit on climate change of forty, with some forty world leaders. I saw something. Even the Pope is going to make an, an appearance. Um and Nikki, the president is expected to um, make some big news today.
3: Oh yeah. Uh, well, I was I was going to actually talk about the fact that what's what's so newsy about this conference is you're going to have Vladimir Putin, that yeah, and President Xi and, involved in it, right? Um and 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 the whole thing with Russia, which I think is so interesting is that, you know, Biden continues to say that, like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get along with Russia on certain issues and on, obviously on other issues we're going to sanction them and, and hold their feet to the fire. But I, I think people are a little worried about the optics of, of this conference today because of what's going on with uh, Alexei Navalny and what happens if he, you know, passes away in prison while he's, you know, mm. involved in this, you know, Big Earth Day um, c- conference. So I think that's one thing to look for uh, as far as, you know, obviously there'll be big environmental news headlines out of it, but just sort of the optics uh, of this conference, we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out for the, the president.
1: Right. Uh, and Jeff, I'll let you pick up on the, the, the president announcing uh, a pretty bold goal for climate uh, uh, c- cutting carbon emissions. Yeah, this is going to be a lot harder—a lot harder hard, target to hit
0: than, than vaccines. He, he's going to hit the target on vaccines, but he—he he, this, this is going to be a bigger reach. Um, it is ambitious, and I guess it has to be at this point. Well, see, so, fifty-two percent, fifty-two percent by twenty thirty, yeah, two thousand five levels, and this is about double of what uh, Obama proposed or agreed to in the in the Paris Agreement. So, look, even if we stipulate that we can get that done in nine years. Nine years, <laughs> and, and the EU can reach their similar goal in nine years by 2030, which is an enormous assumption to make, but let's just make it. Uh, the U.S. only accounts for about 15% of global carbon output, and the EU is a little bit less than that. China is now 28%. So as a couple of my colleagues reported last night, the, the bigger problem is getting these developing nations on board. Um, Biden has India, China, and Brazil on the summit, which is great. But but just getting them on a Zoom call is a far cry from getting them to to mm-hmm. alter their their entire economies, start shutting down coal plants just as their economies are starting to, to to take off. So I think we could be looking at at really a battle between the U.S. and the EU versus the develop developing world for the next decade
1: or so. Right. And Eliza, doesn't this tie into something else in the sense that? Were the president even to get close to meeting these goals, right, Um, a lot of that depends on getting his infrastructure bill passed because the steps to to lead toward a 52 percent cut, a lot of them are contained uh, in like electric vehicles and, and other stuff that's in the infrastructure bill.
2: Exactly. So he has outlined this two plus trillion dollar infrastructure package, but the details still have to be hammered out. There is no legislation yet. And in fact, we are months away from seeing that legislation move through Congress. Right now, they're in the phase where they're still saying they want it to be bipartisan. He's bringing Republicans to the White House. Meanwhile, Democrats on the side are saying, well, it'll actually probably just move through on party line votes the way the COVID relief package moved through. I think if it were to move through on party line votes, they could be more ambitious in some of these things. If they were mm-hmm. going to really try to make it bipartisan and get those 60 votes in the Senate, that would mean all Democrats and 10 Republicans. It's going to be a lot harder to get some of these um, you know, things, especially green technology. I mean, electric vehicles, some of those things do have bipartisan support. But the bigger the package is, the um, harder it is on oil and gas. Those are things that lose Republican support. To be clear, right now they don't have any Republican support. So um, it's looking pretty party-line. But this all needs to be hammered out in legislation. They can't just make this promise without actually having anything in place.
1: Well, uh, well Eliza, what about the Republican alternative infrastructure plan?
2: So Republicans are getting ready to release an alternative plan. They say that Biden's package includes much more than infrastructure. They, in their mind, infrastructure is roads, bridges, um, internet broadband. And so they are going to come up with a plan. We don't know exactly how much yet, but a, a much smaller plan that deals with just those issues where they say, you know, they can find agreement um, you know, Democrats in the White House are waiting for this plan. They say they are open to seeing what it is, but they are saying it needs to be 800 billion plus to even start the negotiations. Uh, Republicans did do this on the COVID relief package, where they put out something. I think it was like 600 billion compared to the 1.9 trillion Democrats were talking about, and they basically were dismissed immediately, and Democrats moved on on their own. So Republicans will have to come up with something significant enough to stay in the room.
1: Right. Uh, And I haven't seen—we haven't seen that yet, at any rate. Uh, And I've seen that some Democrats have said what they've seen so far— the word I keep seeing is anemic, anemic, <laughs> <laughs> this is what they're calling it. Today's panel with Jeff Dufer, Eliza Collins, and Nikki Schwab here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, today's roundtable, uh, we've got a lot of topics that we didn't get to yet. We'll pick up with those after a quick break here on today's roundtable. For today's roundtable, I, I wanted to mention. Uh, ever since the verdict uh, earlier in the week in the George Floyd trial, I've heard from a lot of people saying, "Gosh, we we all got to do something. We all have to be involved." Uh, in this effort to uh, wipe out systemic uh, racism in this country. What can we do? I want to mention a couple of organizations you could check in with, maybe the way to go, uh, that are very much in the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement. One is a new organization called Color of Change. Their mission says that uh, their, their mission is to end practices that unfairly hold Black people back and champion solutions that move us all forward. Their website is colorofchange.org. And the second organization, a very old uh, organization, uh, actually the very first civil rights and human rights organ- uh, legal organization formed in this country back in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall himself. And that is the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, they've been leading the fight for decades. Check out their website at NAACPldF.
3: Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: And we're back with uh, today's roundtable. Nikki Schwab from the Daily Mail, Liza Collins, Wall Street Journal, and Jeff Dufer, National Journal. Uh, we talked about the climate summit happening today. Something else is happening today in the Congress, and that is in the House of Representatives. They're gonna vote on DC statehood. <laughs> well, Nikki, the 51st state on its way, right?
3: Um, Bill, I'm, I'm thinking no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, this is the second time the House has voted on this uh, HR 51 to be to make us the 51st state. Uh, The first time was in September. And then obviously it's a new Congress. So they're voting for this legislation again. Uh, It it just doesn't seem like it has any hope in the U.S. Senate of of ever seeing the light of day. And even if it were to get a vote, obviously, you know, Democrats are now in control of the Senate. Schumer could put it on the floor. I think it would probably fail pretty spectacularly. Uh, And by that, get zero Republican support. I actually looked back to see if any House Republicans had voted for the legislation the first time around, and the number was uh, zero, and they actually lost a uh, Democrat as well. I mean, and it makes sense because— you know, as as we all know, as as mostly D.C. residents, it's a very, very liberal city. It's almost guaranteed that there would be two Democratic senators added to the 100 senators in the Senate and a Democratic House member. Mm-hmm. Um, so politically, it's not great for Republicans. But uh, one thing that was 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 pretty interesting was last month when they had the uh, the House oversight committee hearing on the bill you had republicans talk about all the ways that you know dc shouldn't be a state and it was like oh well they don't have mines in dc and they don't have a landfill and then they said that there weren't auto dealerships which is actually untrue We, we do have auto dealerships uh and then steve scalise put out something yesterday basically saying hey you know they're uh they have a history of uh, corrupt officials and, like, pointed at <laughs> Marion Barry, been dead for, like, a number of years now, uh, and said that, like, our ba- our budget was bad, which is not true. We've got, like, half a billion surplus right now because, you know, the tax base has gotten so much bigger in the last couple of years. And then basically, you know, portraying us as, as sort of irresponsible, and that's why we shouldn't have representation in Congress. Yeah. So,
1: so well, Jeff, isn't the answer just to add Puerto Rico as well?
0: Let me first say that I just moved to Maryland, so I can speak about this dispassionately, unlike the rest of you.
3: No, Jeff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, adding Puerto Rico essentially makes the matter worse as far as Republicans go, because now you're looking at, 50, at 54 Democratic senators. Um, I, I think in order to, to craft any sort of a compromise, you'd have to have... Uh, a new state of northern california or eastern washington state or or, or something like that as a as a 52nd state there was uh there was one other matter that it, while while they were throwing spaghetti at the wall about the lack of mines and car dealerships in dc um there was one thing in the hearing that stuck with me and that was that re- republicans tried to tried to pin mayor bowser down on uh, on the budget namely that Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like that, the federal government covers large portions of the DC budget. The court system, for it, for instance, they asked Bowser how the city would cover that shortfall, and her answer was basically, "Well, we'll figure it out." Uh, and, and I, I think they can get some. Mm-hmm. Th- that issue is salient, and 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 I would also point at um, at George Will's column this morning, which is he points out a, a, a very a non trivial constitutional matter. Uh, which is essentially that the 23rd amendment the way it's written says the the residents of the of the federal district in this case all of DC have the same number of electoral votes as the smallest state in this case 3 so if you make everything but the federal district essentially the national mall a state that means Everyone in the – everyone who still lives around the National Mall area, which would be a, probably a few hundred people, would still technically, the way the law is written, get three electoral votes, um, mm-hmm. which would be bizarre. Yeah. And you would have to he, – he argues you, – you can't undo an amendment with legislation. At some point, there would have to be another amendment to, to address this disparity.
1: Well, I think uh, uh, whether or not I agree with George Will, I think all of us realize that this is a, at least those of us who live in the district, it's a noble effort, but unlikely uh, to happen. I
0: uh, don't expect you to agree this, with George Will for the of This record.
1: year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, Eliza, with the, with the time running out, I want to switch to um, uh, a different topic. I just want to ask you, how much do you miss Donald Trump on Twitter? <laughs>
2: well, we're not interrupted during this, right? <laughs> We knew what the news was going to be, and it didn't change during the whole thirty minutes.
1: There it is, right? For example, it is amazing, isn't it? How quiet things are without him on Twitter. Uh, anybody else want to comment on that?
3: Well, what, what, what the weird thing though is, you know, we get these statements now via email, and they constantly go to my spam. So I, I'm, I'm like seeing that he's like said something on Twitter and I'm like rifling through my, you know, my, my spam box, trying to see if I can find this statement. And sometimes I've actually read them and said like, is this real? Cause I don't have it in front of my face. Yeah. Whereas on like Twitter, I could always like go and check to be like, wait, is this like someone just messing with me or did he actually say this? I find myself uh,
0: inclined to take a screenshot of the statements and then and then tweet my 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 pithy comment with the screenshot, and and about halfway through the process, I say oh, this is too much of a pain in the ass to help with this.
1: Uh,
0: so I think that's probably it's probably good for me and it's good for everyone that it's just too much of, too much of a bother to
1: to react in real time to what Trump says. Right. Uh, so a little breaking news here to end with. I uh, from an inside source, I learned yesterday that this Sunday. In the New York Times Book Review, number one of the nonfiction books is John Boehner's um, new memoir, uh, something about In the House, On the House? Or... On the House. On, On the, the house. house. On the House, yes. Uh, John Boehner, very colorful language. I am listening to it my, um, uh, myself these days. Uh, and here he talks about an incident where he first played golf with uh, Donald Trump, and he had a staffer. There are a couple of guests along. Donald Trump wasn't sure of their names. He asked John Boehner's staffer what their names were, and the poor staffer got their names wrong. John Boehner tells what happens once Donald Trump discovered that. And I hesitate to put an expletive in the mouth of a former president of the United States, but here it goes anyway. You want to know how to remember somebody's name? Trump asked. You fucking listen, (laughs) <laughs> Poor BJ. He looked like he wanted to melt into the ground and pull the turf over his head. I'd never seen anybody treat a staffer like that. Not in politics. Not ever. This was more than New York bluster. This was real anger over something very, very small. And we had no idea then what that anger would do to our country. Eliza, what's John Boehner up to here? Is he Is he—is he making a comeback or is he just dumping on the party?
2: You know, I'm not quite sure, but he certainly is getting a lot of attention for this book. Um, You know, he's made clear before this came out. uh, He's criticized President Trump uh, long before this. But he is certainly back in the public eye with some of this. And he's not just dishing on Trump. I mean, I know there's plenty about Ted Cruz and many others in the book, too. But these are people he has criticized publicly before.
1: Right. But, Nikki... Donald uh, John Boehner did admit that despite all of this, he voted for Donald Trump in 2020.
3: Yeah, I thought that was incredible, uh, because it's it's like he can't quite unglue himself from the Republican Party, even though he watched. I mean, and, and his complaints. I mean, if you read portions of that book, I mean, go back to like 2010 to the origins of the Tea Party. Yeah, I mean, he said all sorts of things about you know Michelle Bachman being a nut, and you know how that whole class that basically like allowed him to ascend to the speakership. Like a lot of them were bonkers and like you know leading the the party in the wrong way. So he's like he he watched this sort of slow motion. Car Car crash, and yet he can he continued to you know enable this party. So, you know, I I think that you know in a way this book sort of allows him to sort of wash his hands at at some of this. But you know,
1: (laughs) yeah, (laughs) he
3: he, he was kind of complicit,
1: (laughs) but his hands are still dirty, right? Yeah, (laughs) Jeff, what's your take?
3: Cigarette and wine,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, a good glass of Merlot and a and a Camel cigarette. Uh, Um, Jeff, what's your take? Well, and now don't forget
0: he's in the marijuana business now too. Hey, cannabis he's rules. Oh yeah, he's, joint he's, as well. <laughs> he's on. He's on the board. Um, it, Boehner what to to, to, <laughs> to play defense on it for him a little bit. He was in a really tough position. Uh, he he and Paul Ryan both trying to trying to manage this ascendant Tea Party movement, what which became the Trump movement, uh, versus the establishment Republicans. Uh, he. He probably did the best he could, but again, uh, after knowing what he knew for four years to, to vote for Trump again, after all the things he said, it, it, it kind of undercuts a lot of, his, a lot of his arguments. If you were going to put him on the witness stand for something, this is you, you would impeach him immediately because, <laughs> be, 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 just because of that one point.
1: Yeah, but he's going to sell a lot of books. So he will sell go. a lot of books. <laughs> exactly. All right. So at the uh, thank you so much for a great a great look back at uh, this week. Was there anything through the week that really caught your attention and made you kind of stop in your tracks and scratch your head and say, "Wow!" Your favorite story of the week. Where do we go, Eliza? You want to start us off.
2: Yeah. So I've been watching my home state of Arizona, which has been really a mess since the election um, with Republicans calling for all sorts of audits. But it looks like a hand recount, a hand audit is going to start today. It took a really long time for them to get there, but the Senate Republicans have basically contracted some companies that have pushed conspiracy theories that Biden didn't win the state. And they are now in charge of two-plus-million ballots that they are hand-recounting.
1: Wow. Um,
2: And so, I mean, there were all sorts of theories. At one point, they were trying to get volunteers. At another point, they said reporters could cover the recount if they took a shift in counting. So it's been pretty messy. I think at this point, they have contractors doing the counting. But I'm definitely watching what happens there. The state basically handed them over and said, we have no liability if you— mess these ballots up, but there's a lot of concern about, you know, that these results won't be accurate, and they'll be used to push
3: conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, a lot riding on that. How about you, Nikki? What caught your attention?
3: Um, so I've been doing reporting on this issue for a while, but there was a big development yesterday, and it is sort of this quest to get these documents uh, that are FBI documents about the connection uh, between the Saudi government and 9-11. Mm. And so a, a handful of new lawmakers, including Nicole, I'm going to butcher her name, Malia Takis, who's a New York Republican, has sort of gotten on board. Um, a group of Republicans yesterday sent a letter to Merrick Garland. And then Ted Deutsch, who's a Florida Democrat, sent a letter to Christopher Ray, uh, And they're really pushing to get some sort of release of these documents kind of before the 20th anniversary of the terror attack. So so that's just something to kind of pay attention to. And, it, and it, it's sort of really interesting because uh, you've got sort of strange bedfellows in the Congress that are really interested in it. Obviously, a big tide in New York. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand last week was really. Um, pushing Christopher Ray to, to to get these disclosures out there, so I think it'll be really interesting because these you know these have been the sort of the secret files that we've been hearing about for you know now what twenty years, uh, and and there's still a lot of questions about you know were there at least low-level Saudi officials involved with helping the hijackers for, with the attack?
1: Yeah, didn't know about that story. That's interesting. And Jeff. Oh, the European
0: Super League, Bill. Oh my God! Take, of take this story and inject it into my veins.
1: <laughs> didn't, la- didn't last long, did it? <laughs>
0: for, yeah, it, it didn't last as long as Quibi. Uh, 48, Forty-eight hours this thing lasted. So, for the uninitiated, uh, for the uninitiated in soccer, this was like as if the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, and the Cubs said, "From now on, we're only going to play each other, and we're going right. to play for this new trophy." Who's with us? Uh, Well, not many people, as it turned out. Um, What's fascinating is that these clubs that were involved are huge brands. They're worth billions. They've got fans all around the world. And it was their owners trying to cash in on this massive audience that they've gained the last few years. Right. But what killed it was the outcry from their local fan bases, Mm -hmm. many of them multi-generational in Liverpool or London or wherever. Um, They said, no, this is not our tradition. That's not how we do things. Uh, They showed up at the stadiums to protest by the thousands. They sent emails, they got on social media, and they forced the owners to pull the plug. It was a real grassroots
1: success story. I loved it, and even Prince William came out against it. Yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, speak uh, k- keeping with the sports theme, I'll, I'll tell you, we caught my attention uh, as a big baseball fan, and can't wait to get back to a Nats game. And I'm wondering how the major leagues are going to deal with this, with the pandemic and getting crowds back. I saw that the Dodgers have come up with a very, I think, great plan. Uh, this weekend at the Dodgers Padres game, if you can show that you have had both vaccinations for at least two weeks and you're at least 16 years old, you can buy a ticket to sit in what they've developed as fully vaccinated sections of the stadium. (laughs) Uh, And so it's just going to be the double vaxxed people uh, all sitting together. Uh, You do have to wear a mask, but you do not have to social distance, which is interesting. So they will pack them in, and I think that's a very uh, creative way to meet uh, the needs of Major League Baseball and the pandemic at the same time. Of course, you are allowed to take your mask off to wear, to eat a Dodger dog, which are still the best hot dogs, I think, at Major League Baseball, saying as a former Dodger fan when I lived in L.A. Uh, well, that's it for today's roundtable. Hey, uh, Eliza Collins, Jeff and Nikki Schwab, thank you so much. Nikki Schwab, of course, from Daily Mail, Eliza Collins Wall Street Journal, Jeff Dufer from National Journal. Uh, and that's it for today. We thank the panel. We thank all of you for joining us. Take care of yourself. Uh, Keep that mask on. Keep up that social distancing. uh, Be strong, be safe and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.